Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. My name is Rita Bode. I am here today with my co-editor, Jean Mitchell, to talk about our volume of essays entitled L.M. Montgomery and the Matter of Natures, published by McGill-Queens University Press. I am professor of English literature at Trent University in Ontario, and I always add in Canada to that since there is a Trent Nottingham University in the UK. My main research focus is in the area of women writers. I do work mostly on American and British writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries, although I also have an interest in contemporary Latina writers. My interest in Montgomery relates to several factors, one of which is that she's a Canadian contemporary of some American writers who I work on and shares with them similar literary interests and challenges to publishing. This is my second book of co-edited essays on Montgomery. I co-edited Ellen Montgomery's Rainbow Valleys, The Ontario Years, 1911 to 1942 with Leslie Clement. And Jean, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Jean Mitchell, and I'm a professor of anthropology, associate professor of anthropology at the University of Prince Edward Island. And my academic interests are uh, informed by my work in Melanesia. I'm an anthropologist, so I, I uh, work in Melanesia for the past couple of decades. And I'm interested particularly in modernity and colonialism, post-colonialism, and um, issues around youth and gender. I've done quite a lot of research there. And most recently, I've become interested in, in uh, ecology, in environment, and, and also the, the changing um, landscape around global warming, which is already affecting the South Pacific Islanders in, in lots of different ways. So as co-editors of the volume on Montgomery and the Matter of Natures, we thought we would present this podcast as a conversation between us with questions and responses back and forth. So this volume was a gift to me in a number of ways because it brought together strands of thought and feeling that, I had, been pre that had been preoccupying my approach to literature. But the idea for Montgomery and Nature came from Eugene. Could, could you talk a bit about how the idea came about, why you chose it, and what in your own previous work led you to it? Thanks, Rita. Uh, I, I think I'd start with my, my professional work and my academic work. I had um, worked with UNICEF before I became an academic. And I, I worked with UNICEF in India for si almost six years and traveled extensively there. And I think when you have that intense experience in a country such as India or any other country, you start to realize that actually notions of nature and culture are very different and enacted in very different ways as are notions of personhood. So I th that was very formative. And from there, I went to the South Pacific and worked in several countries there. Again, I worked with on children's issues with UNICEF there. 
But I also started to do my PhD in the mid 90s in Vanuatu. And, and again, working closely, I've spent years now going back and forth to Vanuatu. Again, I became aware of that, that dualism between nature and culture doesn't exist there. Nature and culture are not separated in the same way. It is nature and cultures. And so these, these were very formative, uh, very formative experiences for me intellectually. The other thing I'll briefly mention is that I grew up in Prince Edward Island. My father had a small farm and I grew up on the North Shore, um, not unlike Montgomery's North Shore. And so when our grade three teacher read Montgomery to us after lunch every day, I was suddenly equipped with a language to describe the world I lived in. And reading Montgomery or hearing her read at nine years old, it allowed me to think that, yes, trees were my kin. And, and that, that was a very exhilarating experience that I've not forgotten. Now, the, the other thing I'll say is that children, without essentializing childhood, but, but my experience with children, and as a child myself, and one of nine children, and we spend a lot of time outside, I think that, that there is a sense of excitement about the animation, how, na how, how, how nature is animated and how it's embodied and how we feel connected. And, and that sense of wonder is, is somehow schooled out of us and we're disciplined to start to think of nature in very reductionist, narrow terms as a source of exploitable resources. So, so I think that acceleration of gaining a vocabulary and you know, hurling myself between my father and the axe when he wanted to cut down those pesky pin cherries and poplar trees uh, made me, when I look back, I realize what an impact Montgomery can have and how she can affect young, young readers and, and also mature readers. So Rita, that's my story. And may I ask you what led you to this volume? Well, yours is a wonderful origin story, Jean. Um, but my own interest in reassessing Montgomery and nature dates back to an earlier Ellen Montgomery Institute conference, which was my first Montgomery conference. And this was the 2004 interior and exterior landscapes one. And the idea of the relationship between interiority and the material world in which our interior landscapes play out really interested me. At the time, I was working on an eco-feminist approach to Melville's Moby Dick, which is a good example of how interests can converge. And at the time, I was also rereading Montgomery's Jane of Lantern Hill for other reasons, and which seemed to bring together aspects of eco-feminism and the psychological impact of environment. And then in the years following, I kept returning to Montgomery and these ideas. So my work on Montgomery General keeps returning to what evolved as central to our volume of essays, and that is materiality and interrelatedness, interconnections, the human and non-human, the human and more than human, an outlook that privileges connections rather than opposition, and it's so close to what you were suggesting about your work in Melanesia, too. Um, an outlook that is consistently and rather than or, bringing things together rather than setting them in opposition. And then, of course, you know, there's the whole idea of the multidisciplinarity of our volume. I wondered if you could perhaps say something about that. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks, Rita. And yes, I think Rita has already, uh, you know, expressed so well the, the major themes in our in our collection, which were interrelatedness and materiality, and each of the authors who are from many of them from from different different disciplines altogether took those themes up. And so we have people who, who are legal scholars, we have literary scholars, we have um, people who are interested in animal studies and anthropologists and people who, who, who use anthropological frameworks. We have queer theory, just, just to name some of them, I think, or most of them. So, we, so we're really pleased that, that it, it allowed us to think in a very broad way and in a very fluid way about the relationship between nature and cultures and so, so I think cross-disciplinarity is, is an important way forward to, in Montgomery studies. And I know that Rita and I have benefited very much from our, from our co-production of this, this volume and, and the introduction where we struggled with ideas from different disciplines. And, and, uh, and it, was a very, it was a very productive and engaging way to approach Montgomery. Yes, I totally agree with that, Jean. Um, and one of the other things I think that was significant in the volumes development um, that really shows is in our choice of section headings. I know that we had lots of ideas on this, on how to position the chapters so that their central interpretations made connections within their sections and with the other parts. And I think our three divisions reflect now as we have them enduring as well as new positionings of Montgomery's work. Uh, our first section brings some new perspectives on a long-standing interest in Montgomery and place. And I thought maybe uh, we could look at some of those chapters. So did you want to say something about okay. maybe Pete and Jenny's yes. chapters? Yeah. Um, uh, yes, thanks, Rita. I'll, I'll say, um, let, let me start with a couple of essays in this section of the book. Um, I'll start with uh, Kate Sanderland's article called Queer Ecology Visits Silver Bush. And Silver Bush, of course, is the farm where um, Pat, the protagonist, lives. And it's, it's a two-volume, um, it, 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 Pat takes place with, within two volumes. And Montgomery wrote it later in life, and, and it's often said, and she herself has alluded to the fact that she's very much in, this, in these books. And so, so Kate uh, Sanderlands is um, a queer ecologist, and she she looks at at the notion of place, and and she she completely rethinks it from uh, a particular point of view, starting with the idea that women always leave their place upon marriage; they sever ties with their place. So rather than normalize that or accept that. Kate Sanderland interrogates that point. How is it that women leave their place and what does that mean? And so she denaturalizes those sorts of assumptions that we have in culture that we don't actually think about, especially now that we live in highly urbanized so-called modern societies. We don't think about that, but for many places in the world, this is, there's this still that severing of place. And so what she looks at is instead of thinking about Pat as pathologically um, inclined because she doesn't want to marry and leave her place, and, and some theorists have looked at Pat in that way, 
she repositions Pat as somebody who loves her place and is and looks at that attachment in a productive way in that that attachment is brimming with social ecological relationships that are powerful and transformative and in the book in, in the article in in the book Kate also looks at the notion of island what does the you know this idea that islands are insular and she also looks at the notion of succession through the fire that takes place in in the novel and destroys the place that that Pat loves so much. So in looking at fire uh, as, as a transformation, as also containing regeneration. And at that point, she draws on a novelist from the West Coast, Janice Rule, and brings her into conversation with Montgomery. And it, it's a really fascinating look at two, two novels that have often not been read widely. And so, um, Kate had not read Montgomery before. So it's, it's a really fascinating way to rethink. And, and it shows how novels can be rethought from different theoretical positions. I'll just speak very briefly about another, another uh, essay in the collection. It's written by Jennifer Litzer, who, and, and the title is The Scotsman, the Scribe and the Spyglass, going back with Montgomery to Prince Edward Island. And in this essay, Jenny talks about how Montgomery in, in, decided to transcribe a farmer's diary that was written in the early 1890s. So she's in Ontario and she's thinking about Prince Edward Island where she, she has not lived for many years. And so she meticulously writes out this, this diary in her journals and it allows her as Jenny, the Jenny Litzer argues to to reimagine and rethink her childhood. And uh, it, the, the diaries, very quotidian details of farmer's life. And upon, after reading that, she's also writing Jane of Lantern Hill. And, and, it, it, and Jenny talks about how the diary and the reimagination of Prince Edward Island landscape is filtered in that in, in that book. And so Jane, for example, is the only heroine of all Montgomery's heroines who embraces rural life and, and farm, farm life. And, and so it's, it's a very interesting take on, on landscape, on reimagination of landscape, on memory, and also the contrast between urban Toronto and rural Prince Edward Island introduces a notion of class. So I'll leave it there, but it's, 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 it's a very rich reading and it's a, it's a very interesting companion with Kate's article. For sure. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Nancy Holmes' work, which also in a different way uh, relates to Kate's. Um, Nancy's work in the volume directs us in a new direction, I think, with Montgomery in several ways in bringing Montgomery's work into discussion with American writer Gene Stratton Porter, who was a very significant naturalist and a contemporary of Montgomery's. Porter was from Indiana and she was, I think just nine years younger, born nine years before Montgomery. And this idea, I think, and this is how I think it relates to Kate's of bringing Montgomery into conversation with a whole new range of writers with whom she has not been previously associated opens up to her inclusion in different literary streams 
I think suggests a range of literary developments across space and time that enrich our understanding of her work and also the work of the authors with whom she's being associated. From my perspective, of course, situating Montgomery among other women writers is significant in terms of identifying ways in which their work was received because they were women and how they were often seen as followers of canonical male writers rather than as forging developments of their own. Nancy suggests, I think, not necessarily influence in bringing Montgomery and Porter together, though of course that's always a possibility, but rather a parallel development in their work as precursors of what today we would call echo fiction. That is fiction in which place is as important, if not more important than plot. It is a genre that we are just becoming, I think, aware of, a genre that participates in and brings together elements from different genres. Echo fiction has a narrative line, but in its emphasis on place also draws close to nature writing. And unsurprisingly, I think this kind of freedom in crossing boundaries has great appeal to child and young adult readers who are always so keen to push against limitations and restrictions. And maybe it also speaks a little bit to the child and adults as they're reading this work as well. And then I'll talk a little bit just briefly about my own chapter in which I look at place in terms of built environments, an interest I definitely share with Montgomery. Shelter is such a basic need and it is so much a part of our environment. And it can come in all kinds of forms that are both detrimental and beneficial to life, both human and organic life. Houses are certainly our dwellings are all important in Montgomery's work and her approach to them I think is forward looking because they not only function symbolically and that is certainly an important aspect of literary houses with these metaphoric possibilities. Um, but her houses also exert a significant physical presence. They are material objects that have an impact. So they are an environment, but they also impact their environments. Her houses espouse so well that we are physical beings who inhabit physical space. And her houses espouse architectural principles that were current in her time. So I'm thinking here of Anna and, uh, and with an E and Diana's Idlewild, which in, in which forms, form follows function, which was what American architect Louis Sullivan espoused. I, I think what her fictional houses also show is that houses need to be in harmony with the land on which they stand. At the beginning of Emily of New Moon, the house that Emily shares with her father seems not to have been built, but to have grown up, and those are Montgomery's words, grown up where it stands, like a mushroom. And then the house at the end of Jane of Lantern Hill is entirely in keeping with the architectural principles of Frank Lloyd Wright that called for harmony and integration between the earth and its dwellings. And Wright is of course associated with organic architecture it's, as it's been called. So th this is really very much a part of the materialism that our volume I think embraces. And so we could turn to our next section then. Um, and Jean, maybe you could introduce that. Yes, I'll, I'll do so. Thanks, Rita. So the, uh, this next section entitled Embodied Nature. 
and and in this uh, section we, we, the authors look at how how nature is imagined and observed and embodied in Montgomery's work, and so it connects the material and and the social and the social in, in human experience, and it also points to a very important theoretical point throughout the volume in that the body is material. So so we. When we talk about matter, we talk about matter being lively and vital, the vitality of, of matter, but we also draw attention to the materiality of the body. So, so there's a number of very interesting essays in, in this section, and I'm going to just start with them. Um, well, I'll just, I'll just say a, a few things about mine and then move to another essay. And then maybe, Rita, you would take over, just talk some, about some of the, the other points made in this chapter, in this section. My, my chapter deals with neurasthenia and the matter of nerves. Neurasthenia was um, a condition that emerged in the 1870s and very, very prevalent in late Victorian and early Edwardian eras. And it was often often a sickness of intellectuals and artists and it pro it provided a language to to like that, that a language that connected nature culture and society because this nervous condition was was seen to be a, a product of modernization so it was modernization was fraying if not destroying um, nerves and making people uh, nervous so so when Montgomery in the in mid 1880s self-diagnosed herself as a neurasthenic I think it was a means as I point out in the article to both uh, to to validate both her her own anxiety and and her creativity because it, it was a disease often seen to be a disease of artists I also point out to the gendered aspects of this illness and, and how, in fact, um, Montgomery took refuge in the idea that it was a somatic illness, that it was a disease of the body rather of the, of the mind, which, which uh, allowed her to, I think, cope with her, her anxiety in particular ways. I wanted also in this article to talk about how mental illness or what we call mental illness was not codified in the same way 120 years ago that that in fact in fact any kind of mental distress is is historicized and so that's another point but um i i think that montgomery clearly saw that nature was restorative but she she did it in a very complex and, and expansive way. So in any case, um, I just want to mention something, another article in this section, which is very interesting. Um, Kate Sunderland is a legal scholar at York University. She's also a creative writer. And she talks about um, the education of Emily tempering the force of nature through lessons in law. And she takes up the notion of, of natural law in children's literature. And, and she talks about the, how, how morality and notions of law are cultivated. And she, she, she very, very usefully looks at the distinction between natural law, which is, seems to be, or was believed to be derived from moral truths about human nature and, and, 
and she contrasts that with with um with positive law that he, that emerged much later in the 19th century and and of course it separated law and morality so she she embarks in a very interesting discussion of the emily novels and also montgomery's own legal um, problems at the time and i think we can agree that she very effectively complicates the idea of law and and assumptions that, that we make about nature and about morality so um i will leave it there rita and and uh, uh, perhaps you could talk about the other two articles in this section yes for sure Thanks, Jean. So Betsy Epperly addresses a long-standing question about Montgomery's enduring transnational appeal. And she locates it in the pattern of her metaphors which engage nature. Uh, it's a wonderful article in, in terms of bringing together so many strands, especially um, from science as well as literary analysis. So Betsy focuses on bridges and bridging and the way in which these create communion between human and non-human nature. And what is particularly, as I said, exciting about her approach is that she draws on neuroscience, which suggests the materiality, the physicality of human beings. In, in this piece, uh, Betsy sees the mind and the natural world working together in really powerful ways, ways that have an appeal to readers. And she explains perhaps in part, and that explains perhaps in part at least, the way that Montgomery appeals to both child and adult readers. And not only that, but she moves along with readers as they grow into adulthood. Montgomery does. Montgomery moves along from child reading to adult reading. Even if, you know, the, the readers first... Uh, if a reader's first read her as a child or as a youth, they, they continue to read her, I think, which is a really interesting aspect too of her appeal. I think we could say, and, and certainly um, the way that Betsy presents this, is that Montgomery in a way touches our minds as well as our hearts. And Betsy's approach brings out the scientific side of this, showing again that we are part of the materiality that constitutes the world. Um, and then we have one other uh, chapter in this section, and that is Tara Parmiter's work on the nature study movement. And this speaks strongly to Montgomery's understanding of childhood. In Anne, as Tara outlines, Montgomery brings out so effectively that combination of, and, 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 and Anne, the, the character here, as well as in the novel, of course. Um, but Tara outlines, I think, so well and so effectively that combination of curiosity and wonder through which children respond to the world around them. And I was thinking back to your own experience, Jean, of growing up, but it's that kind of combination of the practical and rational questioning that children often bring to their experience, but also that openness and active imagination that they also um, all, you know, seem to seem so central to, their, to the child's experience. Um, and, and Tara's study of the nature study movement, which encouraged the direct observation of the natural world, and that's a quote, highlights an important aspect, I think, of educational practice in the early decades of the 20th century, and shows the way in which art and science were and are complementary. 
She also associates Montgomery with another group of writers with whom to study her, like Nancy Holmes. She mentions Jean Stratton Porter, but also she mentions Ernest Thomas Seton and Mabel Osgood Wright, a leader in the Audubon organization. The works of these writers, like Montgomery's, engage children with the outdoors in such joyful ways. And then our last section, Nature's Otherness, focuses on difference in terms of such issues as nature and nurture, animals and humans. It looks at kinship models and what constitutes family and belonging, the differences that emerge in the social construction of gender, sexuality, and race, all within Montgomery's explorations of these differences in what she sees as an interconnected world. Uh, well, this reminds me that one of the recent initiatives, too, of the Journal of L.A. Montgomery Studies is a resource list compiled by the Institute's anti-racist working group of material, which is both material both scholarly and creative, that discusses Montgomery in the context of colonialism, systemic racism, and tolerance, topics that are always fraught and more so, of course, more so than ever in our current heightened awareness of social injustice um, amongst these topics and, and that people actually experience not only in the States, but elsewhere in the world, including Canada. And one of the things that Paul Keene's study of the unnatural orphan, and I'm quoting that from his article in Anne of Green Gables shows, is Montgomery's exploring what constitutes the other, what creates difference. Difference relates to the strange, the unknown, but not the unknowable. So there is a process of working towards a knowledge of the other that Keene identifies here, that Paul identifies. A process not in terms of origins of the past, although I think Montgomery does keep that in view as well, but rather in the here and now, in the material immediacy of bodies and minds meeting. And as Paul points out in his conclusion, this knowledge also encourages self-knowledge. And then I think Laura Robinson addresses something of the nature-nurture issue as well. So Jean, did you want to yeah. talk a little um, bit about Laura's yeah. Yes, um, you know, I think what Laura, you know, is very interesting, very interestingly does is she, um, she, you know, she raises the issue, what could be more natural than, than families or kinship? But of course, reading Montgomery closely and using anthropological theory on kinship, which has greatly rethought re what kinship is based on experiences in other countries and other cultures where, uh, you know, you create kin through feeding them, not necessarily through bloodlines, for example. Certainly the case in, in, uh, in many parts of the world. So, so what she does is she takes um, theory and, and she, she looks at how Montgomery on one hand has, seems to have a very conventional approach to, to families. And, and, you know, the natural is represented in, in a biological family and heterosexual marriage. But at the same time, um, Laura Robinson argues that the, this nat, so-called natural or natural processes are, are actually somewhat unnatural in Montgomery's uh, reading. So, so Montgomery, according to Laura, casts, you know, some kind of doubt on 
you know, the, the family as a particularly or specifically biologically determined phenomenon. And, and what she does in her analysis is she shows how, how Montgomery, again, troubles this, these oppositions between nature and culture and nature and nurture. And, and Montgomery does so, as Laura points out, by privileging affiliation over affiliation, which is a, a really lovely way to look at this issue. Yes, for sure. So, so um, would you like to have um, talk about uh, Leslie Clemens' article briefly? Okay, um, I have a few brief things to say about uh, the topic, which is such an interesting one in relation to Montgomery on empathy. Um, Leslie Clement brings together, once again, I think, as so many of our chapters do several threads in the volume, her approach through biologists and primatologists, friends to Wall's work on empathy, once again brings science into literary analysis and studies, and through this, she studies the artistic sensibility that is most prominent, Leslie argues, in Emily, who is the creative writer, of course, and who shares many of Montgomery's own inner life turmoils. Leslie's article traces multiple possibilities for relating to nature, and in Emily, she finds an awareness of what is a dark nature one that is not only reassuring, but also frightening. And that can really, um, I, I think, encourage the imagination in all kinds of new and, and often dark ways. Um, and I think one that attests to then to nature's multiplicity, which is of course also so central to our volume. Uh, that, you know, the, I, I mean, we deliberately, and I think once again, this was your idea, Jane, we deliberately made nature plural, put nature, the matter of natures in the plural, because of this multiplicity that we see in so many of our chapters. And then we could turn to our last one, which is such a delightful rendering of human and non-human uh, concepts. Yes, um, Edette Nume. Uh, Edette has been coming to the um, Prince Edward Island quite regularly for conferences on Montgomery and she, uh, she uh, is in South Africa and teaches at a university there. And, and the article that, or the subject that she chose was as, you know, animals, the nature of the beast, as she says in Montgomery's fiction. And it's very interesting. She draws on animal studies and she looks at how depictions of people's relationships with pets, in, you know, tell us a great deal about the moral worth and potential for empathy that, that Rita just mentioned. And she also looks at how over the course of Montgomery's life, um, violence against animals becomes more predominant and um, or escalates in her fiction. And, and as, as uh, Edette argues, it, it becomes a, a barometer for her you know, for her ex expressing concerns in, in so many different areas of her life. Um, not, so, so, so it's a really interesting insight into Montgomery. And I'll just mention very briefly, as, as Adette does, that she hardly mentions uh, farm animals, even though she grew up and writes about rural Prince Edward Island. And um, Jenny Litzer, whom we've already talked about, also notes that um, Montgomery leaves out the hard graft of the of the farm. It doesn't impinge on her character. So, so, so there's lots more to explore in terms of Montgomery and her animals. 
I, I agree. And in fact, that whole idea of the agricultural narrative that it seems to me is always a little bit under the surface in so mm -hmm. many of her novels would be so exciting too. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.